0: 1 Samuel chapter 26, please. I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. Follow along with me if you would. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Nair, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Himelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul, sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. And David went over to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, will you not answer Abner? Then Abner answered, who are you who calls to the king? David said to Abner, are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is in the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David, you will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we come to our text this morning, we're coming under the title of A Test of Leadership Part 3 because I know the titles are getting more and more creative as this little mini-series goes on, right? We started at Part 1. Last week was Part 2. Today's Part 3. Next week we're going to have to work on a sermon title because I don't think it's quite A Test of Leadership Part 4. But this is definitely the third part of God's testing david in the wilderness and particularly these tests of leadership have revealed some things about david's heart david's actions david's worldview his mindset the people around david it's revealed a lot about who david is but it is in a lot of ways revealed much more about who god is how god works see it's usually we think of tests in school or perhaps even in the workplace as simply ways of assessing. It's an assessment. How, how well do you know or how well do you do at this particular task or whatever it might be? But David's tests have seemed to reveal more than just his ability. They've revealed his character. And that's one of the big things that we'll see here this passage today. I've already mentioned that chapter chapter 26, verse 23 is the key to understanding why all this happens. Because doesn't it sound familiar? Doesn't it almost sound like we've already read this story and talked about just about everything in it? In chapter 24, we see David being pursued by Saul. We see David hiding in a cave. We see Saul coming into a cave and David having an opportunity to work against Saul all by himself, all alone. He could have killed him in the cave and he doesn't. He comes out with a piece of Saul's robe in his hand and says, Oh, Lord, my king, I could have killed you. I didn't. I'm more concerned about the Lord's will than my own will. Some liberal scholars have taken chapter 24 and chapter 26 and kind of said, This is really just the same story. Because there is so much overlap, a lot of people will look at this and say, Maybe the writer's just writing the same story again for us for reiteration. I don't really think that's valid, though. And it's not because I think I'm smarter than really, really smart guys with letters at the end of their names. But I think it's because there's so many differences in chapter 26 to chapter 24. And we'll see those as we walk through this. But something to keep in your mind is, why is this story here? Or perhaps we might say, look, chapter 24 and chapter 26 are so similar. Why not just leave it at chapter 26 and leave out chapter 24? We have both of these tests and then the one in the middle with Nabal the fool because God is showing us something bigger than just one story. So with that in mind, I direct your attention to the bulletin if it's helpful to you. There's an outline here. We're going to kind of take this in three parts. We're going to look at the action of righteousness and faithfulness. Then we're going to look at the heart of righteousness and faithfulness. And then finally, the transaction of righteousness and faithfulness. Coming to the beginning of the chapter, we might have thought that Saul was done chasing David. Do you notice that? That as we ended chapter 24, the last time we saw Saul, he was kind of like saying the same things as what he said at the end of chapter 26 say, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to go after you. Hey, you go your way, I'll go my way. Everything's going to be fine. But look down at verse 1, church, if you would. Who is it that shows up again? It's the same tribe, the same group of people, the Ziphites, coming out to Saul at Gibeah and saying, isn't David out here in the hills? We might have thought that Saul was truly going to be done, but obviously He couldn't resist. Now knowing where David was, he feels he has to take action. It's reignited his murderous intention. Now David, of course, finds out about Saul too. So again, this is another one of those big similarities with chapter 24. We we get the idea that Saul figures out where David is. David finds out that Saul knows where David is. And David has a jump on him, even though Saul thinks he's the one initiating everything. David invades Saul's camp with two sidekicks. And sidekick number one is another Ahimelech, not the one that we heard about in previous chapters. But this is Ahimelech the Hittite. So this would have been one of the um, sort of ragtag crew that joined David. And this is kind of the only place we really hear about him. He went down with David towards the camp. But then the second sidekick that joins David is his nephew Abishai. And look at Abishai's familiar words again compared to chapter 24. Look at verse 8. Abishai says, God has given your enemy into your hand today. This is what sounds really familiar. In the cave, when David saw Saul going in there to answer a call of nature, all of his servants were around him going, David, there's nobody guarding him. He is absolutely exposed. You could take him out right now. And they said these same words. God has given your enemy into your hand. This is the day the Lord has spoken of to you. It's not always a good thing when we are so certain that we know exactly the way God's Word is going to play out in our lives. Not always, okay? There's something about understanding the truth of God's Word, but we know right here from what David's going to do that Abishai is completely wrong. And this is one of the problems that we face in our Christian life, that that we might say, goodness, I can read Jeremiah 29, 11, and, and he doesn't have plans to destroy me. He has plans for me to prosper, Right? And, and when I get this job offer with a big raise, and I nice, when we go, wow, this is what the Lord was speaking about. But it might not be at all. Very important for us to stay near God and to act in righteousness and faithfulness before him. Abishai thinks he's doing that, but David's going to help him out here. It's a great, great illustration of our need for discipleship. Church, one of the reasons why we gather every Sunday morning, even though you could stay home, you could listen to other sermons, you could do your own Bible study, you could do all of the Christian life, we might convince ourselves, by ourselves. We need each other. This is part of God's ordained intention for us to learn and grow together. Abishai would not be all right without David. Anyway, let's let's continue on here. See, Abishai says in verse 8, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. And I love that he says, now please. I don't really read it as just him saying, please let me pin him to the earth. It's please let me get rid of this guy. And you almost imagine that Abishai's heart behind this is him saying, David has had his opportunity to kill Saul and he hasn't taken it. Maybe he just gets a little squeamish when it comes to the opportunity. So maybe I could just do it. Please let me pin him to the earth. He even emphasizes, he says, I'll do it with one stroke of the spear. I mean, this is like kind of like getting PG-13 here, but he's like, look, it's not going to be hard. I won't need to get him twice. It'll be one quick, swift movement, and all your problems will be over. What was it that David learned in chapter 24 about a very similar opportunity? Our job is not to look for shortcuts. David knows this. Again, it sounds so familiar to chapter 24. The servants of David prompted his hand to strike Saul, and he chose not to. And this time, even though it's Abishai at his side who adds this and says, hey, let me take care of this, look at what David says in verse 9. David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? This is really important right here to stop and just say, how necessary it is for us to prioritize the matters of righteousness and faithfulness in our lives over the matters of convenience and success. How convenient it would be to just take care of Saul right now. Oh, David, your life would be so much better if you just didn't have Saul in your life. But David understands something deeper than the matter of his own convenience or his own comfort. And church, it's very easy for us when we in our Christian lives try to find that next, next breakthrough moment, that next moment of opening up God's word and going, whoa, that just shone so brightly and it, it's changed everything. Or, or I did a Bible study where there was this one thing that was so emphasized and it was so perfectly timed. We're always looking for those kind of mountaintop experiences, aren't we? And those experiences especially that will take away the things that are thorns in our side. Those things that we know if we just didn't have to deal with this problem, if God would just pay off that one loan that I have that's lingering that I just can't get to, or if God would just take care of this coworker who's been such a pain in the neck, if he would just make him go work somewhere else, all my problems would be fixed. David does not believe that. Look at verse 10. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. I I love that David is like, there's so many other ways that Saul could die here. (laughs) He recognizes, I know, my life would be a lot easier if Saul wasn't around. It's not my job to kill him, though. And he's so convinced by that that he says, listen, Abishai, it's it's like, David, I I feel like you've been thinking about the death of Saul too much here, right? (laughs) He's like, he could get run over by a truck. He could, you know, lose all his money. Like, you he, he just kind of imagine this is an expression of David's struggle in his heart with all the possibilities of all the daydreaming he could have done Have said, like, I wish that tomorrow would be the day I woke up and found out that Saul had a stroke and died in his sleep. No. As the Lord lives. As the Lord lives. The Lord will do these things. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Saul is still the Lord's anointed. Now, you can make a really great case, and you can imagine Abishai would make a really great case. David, you're the Lord's anointed, though. Yeah, but God hasn't taken Saul off the throne. So, in that sense, he still has this authority. He still has this position that God has put him in. That David can't say, hey, I'm next in line. I'm just going to boot you out of here, and we're going to move on. So, David says this. I'm not going to put my hand out against the Lord's anointed, but take his spear at his head and the jar of water and let us go. You know, last time David tore a piece of Saul's robe, and this time he swipes a spear in a water jar. Last time when the robe was cut, it said that David's heart struck him. And this is one of the big differences where we say chapter 24 and chapter 26 are totally different situations because in 24, David goes off and he's like, oh yeah, I'm going to get him. He cuts off the robe and it's like the instant his knife finishes cutting, he goes, oh, what have I done? I've been a fool. This is not right. This is not what God wants. David has no second thought about taking the spear in the water jug because he has a very particular plan in mind. He has a righteous plan in mind, a faithful plan in mind. And this plan is going to be enacted not primarily so that David can get Saul off of his back, but he does have 600 guys that are traveling with him. He's considering the bloodshed that would happen if Saul's 3,000 came and wiped out David's 600. So he's protecting his men. He has a way of doing it. In verse 12 we see, David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. And this next sentence brings us back again to verse 9, where he says, or sorry, verse 10, where he says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will. He is relying on God's action more than his own. So he says, or the author tells us, rather, no man saw them or knew what they did. Nobody even woke up. As David and Abishai were traveling through the camp... David recognized here that the Lord had put a deep sleep over them. We love to see God's sovereign work in his word. We love to see God's sovereign work in our lives too. And sometimes we don't see it because it doesn't seem to have such a stark contrast to the rest of things that are going on. Sometimes God works in really subtle ways. It's not always a burning a burning burning bush church, not a burning church. <laughs> It's not always a burning bush. It's not always some big, fantastical, miraculous thing. Sometimes it's a matter of what we would foolishly, I think, call coincidence or happenstance. Why is it that these guys were like totally knocked out? The author tells us the Lord is the one who put, made a deep sleep fall over over them. That doesn't sound so exciting, but it got the job done. And often this is how the Lord reminds us that. If you don't see a miraculous, angelic presence this afternoon, reminding you that God is faithful, that God is your refuge, church, you don't need that. Because in this very moment, he gives you life and breath and everything. He is sustaining you by the power of his word. And that's why when church starts and we say, hey, let's get up and sing, great are you, Lord. We can do it no matter what was happening just moments before because he is still great and he is still working. David's actions then show his massive growth from the last two chapters. Certainly in chapter 24, he ended up making the right decision, but there was a little hiccup in there. His conscience hit him with the reality of what he was doing. He responded in chapter 25 to God's restraining grace through the words of Abigail And he didn't kill Nabal and all of his men. But here in chapter 26, we see the righteous and faithful action of someone who goes into the situation with a plan that is righteous and faithful. Someone who's chosen by God, equipped by God for the work of God. And that's not to say that every time we put our hand to do the work that God has for us, that we're going to do it with such smoothness and certainty that David shows here. I mean, David stumbles a lot in this story. But sometimes there's those moments where you go, you know what? Saul's around the corner. I think I know exactly what the Lord wants us to do. And this isn't, I think one of the reasons why David knew with such certainty was because he didn't go off and kill Saul, right? Abishai's thought was, this is really convenient for us. Let's let's make this happen. No, the action of the righteous and faithful is an action that is directed by the Lord. While our life in the Lord is one of receiving and believing truth, it's also meant to be one of righteous and faithful action. That's what's so important, I think, in this moment right now, as we are sitting over, looking over God's Word as you're listening to a sermon. How essential is it for you to not leave this place unchanged, to not go back to the ways that we've thought before? I'm not saying that this is going to be one of those revolutionary, big mountaintop experiences. But church, it's a moment where we've paused our week and said, let's stop and hear from God for a moment. And let us not be unchanged in that as our week approaches just tomorrow morning. Well, let's go to verses 13 through 20. We've seen the action of righteousness and faithfulness. Now let's look at the heart of righteousness and faithfulness. David's used to standing on one hill with an enemy nearby. He's been doing it since chapter 17. And this is what he does starting at verse 13. He, he stands far off. He's, he's wise here. You know, he's not just hanging out with all the soldiers. He's, he's going, hey, I'm going to stand up here so you can hear me, so you can see me. And because I don't know how you're going to respond so that I can have a way of getting out of here if I need to quickly. Again, another difference between chapter 24 and 26 is that David doesn't call Saul. He calls out Abner, the commander of Saul's army. And he says, hey, for all your manliness, you were asleep when your king was unguarded and you would have let him die. I love David's words in this. Aren't you a man? Isn't that great? That's, like, that's a really good one, guys, for us to like write on our mirrors in the morning. Aren't you a man? aren't you supposed to be acting in a certain way that honors God? David condemns Abner as worthy of death because he didn't fulfill his soldierly duty of laying his life down for his king. Abishai would have killed Saul if David hadn't stopped him, and that's what I think David is mentioning when he says that someone entered the camp to kill him. Maybe that was even part of why he brought Abishai, because he knew he wasn't going to kill him, but he could honestly say, there was a man in the camp who, if I would have let him, he would have dropped a spear in the skull of your king. David has remained faithful to Saul, even as Abner proves faithless. Isn't that fascinating? The faithfulness that God is working into David's heart is extended not only to the matter of him being obedient to God, but and faithful to God, but being faithful even to his enemy. Doesn't it remind you of something? That we hear in the words of Jesus of loving our enemies, blessing those who curse us. Speaking of cursings, David asks Saul what he's done wrong. When Saul kind of, his ears perk up and he goes, oh, isn't that you, my son David? And we go, oh, give me a break, Saul, with this whole my son stuff. We know why you're out here. You're not looking for your wayward son-in-law that you just miss so much. David says, what have I done wrong? What evil's on my hands? He says, I'm willing to offer a sacrifice to the Lord if he's just testing me. But if someone has made you believe that I'm your enemy, let them be under a curse because they've cursed me. David says that in effect, I'm now under the curse <coughs> excuse me, of not being allowed to be in my own nation. That's why he says, they have said to me, go out and seek and worship and serve other gods. Go out and be like the Gentiles. You're not welcome here, is what they're saying to David. He knows he can still serve the true God wherever he is, but he's being treated as though he's cast out of the covenant family of the Lord. And he says, As far as my harming you, I'm as dangerous as a flea. He's more concerned with the righteousness of God and the faithfulness of God being displayed in his own life. And that is such a thing for us to learn in the wilderness trials that we face. To be more concerned with displaying God's righteousness and faithfulness than with getting through whatever challenge we're facing. Oh my goodness, how do we do this so much? And I do do too, that's why I say oh my goodness, because wow, even in my own heart reading this, I'm like, man, what's my prayer request when something's difficult? Oh, just ask the Lord that this thing would be over and resolved quickly and everything would be smooth sailing afterwards, right? David had the opportunity to make that kind of prayer request, to act on that prayer request. But it is so essential for us to learn in the wilderness the importance of displaying God's righteousness and faithfulness. We need to be careful that if that's something that we're being taught right now, that we have listening ears to the Lord. Church, we believe that God shapes our values and priorities by his word. By it, he transforms our hearts before him. And David's heart has been on display in these three tests, hasn't it? We've seen and learned a lot about David. In chapter 24, he could have taken a shortcut through the trial by killing Saul. Instead, he struck his own heart. In chapter 25, he could have brought serious destruction and wrath down on a foolish and wicked Nabal, but instead he restrained himself by the wisdom of God through Abigail, as she reminded him of God's promises and his own faithfulness. And now David's heart has been so shaped by these previous wilderness tests that his purpose is displaying God's righteousness and faithfulness in his own life. That's his purpose now. Is that your purpose in your life? Have you ever prayed something like, Lord, I just want you to use me? And then immediately you get hit with some kind of trial, some kind of really difficult thing, and you go, Not like that. I mean, I want you to get me a platform. I want to stand in front of a million people. I want to tell them about how great you are. And he goes, yeah, get to it, right? This is what David is learning. Seems to be the purpose of these three tests, doesn't it? To display the righteousness, the faithfulness of God. And doesn't it clarify the purpose of any testing in our own lives? Why is God making me go through this really difficult season of life? I will tell you, it is to display his faithfulness and his righteousness. Because at the end of the day, even if you could say, oh my goodness, today things just kept getting worse and worse and worse, and I prayed and I read the Bible and I called somebody and I, I prayed and I got counsel and I did all these things, and it kept getting worse. At the end of the day, I could still say, but the Lord is faithful. The Lord is righteous. He isn't wrong in anything that he's done here. I can trust that no matter what. heart of righteousness and faithfulness is a heart that is lined up with God's own heart of righteousness and faithfulness. And finally, maybe we can start to say that as we've misconstrued the grammar of that old phrase, David being a man after God's own heart, and we said, hey, no, that's not it. The fact is he is a man chosen by God's own heart. God's heart chose David. Why? Because he did Not because he said, oh, David, he's the one. Wow, finally somebody's going to do everything I wanted him to do. Church, have we not learned that David doesn't do everything right? (laughs) Right? He's not Jesus. He's just a forerunner of him. He's just a shadow of him. But now, as we see him in this test, we can start to see what a man who chases after God's own heart looks like. And what we ought to be doing as well. Let's move then to the transaction of righteousness and faithfulness. Saul offers a confession. And when Abishai would have returned the spear to Saul's skull, David graciously returns it to Saul's hand. He gives him back his favorite toy, that symbol of his own leadership, that reminder that, you know, Samuel might have said, I'm, this kingdom's going to be torn from me, but I still got the spear. I'm still sitting on the throne. Everybody still listens to me. Saul's heart was probably so hardened which, which we're surmising this from the beginning of the chapter, that he was willing again to go after David after what happened in chapter 24. His heart was so hardened that it seems like he could have walked away from this and just said, look at that. Even David listens to me. Saul is a fool. And it's heartbreaking. But at least he offers a confession. I have done wrong. Forgive me. Come back with me. And David gives him his spear back that same spear that would have pinned David three times to a wall, the same spear that was Saul's totem telling him that he was king even though God had rejected him. David could have demanded the crown. He could have rallied Saul's troops against him. Don't you think he could have stood before those 3,000 men and said, what are you doing following Saul? Why not follow me? Why not let me be the king? Why not do what I'm doing? Look at the prosperity that I've brought on these 600 bozos from all over the place, right? He could have gone in so many different directions, but he passes the spear back to Saul and goes his own way. He chose to receive merely Saul's confession and the peace that if only for a moment would afford his men the ability to turn the heat down, turn down the pressure and get away somewhere else safe before Saul might attack again. All of Saul's words are hollow. There's no reason to believe him. We know this, don't we? We know not to believe somebody when they say, Oh, I'll never do that thing that I've done a hundred times already again. The hundred and first time is not going to be any harder than the hundredth time. So David receives Saul's words as they truly are. But let's look again at David's words in verse 23. As I think again, they are central to understanding this passage. David says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. David initiated a transaction with Saul in this last section. Because he was looking at a greater reward to receive from the Lord. He wasn't going to look to Saul for what only God could give him. At the end of the day, David was able to say that he had acted in righteousness and faithfulness. He knew that in keeping those priorities, he had a far better view to the faithfulness and righteousness of God. Than he would otherwise. Do you ever doubt that God is truly righteous? As we swim in a culture that asks that question all the time, it sounds like this. If God is good and God is powerful and God loves us, then why, you know, and then there comes the venom of, I've got you now, traditional conservative Christian that believes the Bible. Why does he let evil things happen? Why are people dying in the Middle East? Why is my kid sick? Why, you know, why, 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 why? We could say this, that God is bigger than us. His righteousness is far greater than a perceived righteousness on our own account. And we can also point out the fact that we deserve no reward for any of our deeds. So why is it that David looks to God for a reward? It can only be because he aligned his life with the Lord's will, even when it seemed contrary to his own good. When we look at points in David's future, we can see how he's not always fixed on the Lord's reward. But what about us? Is the reward of God in the horizon of our lives today? You know, the Hebrew word translated reward here can literally mean return or a repayment. So think of it as an investment in one sense. When we're in the wilderness of life, facing tests that the Lord orchestrates for our good, right? We believe that. We see that in David's life. We know that we have opportunities to invest our time, our talents, our treasure, the resources that the Lord has granted to us. We have opportunities to invest those things into things or people that we trust to see us through. I'm going through a difficult financial season. What am I going to do? I'm going to go talk to a financial advisor. Boy, my health has been crazy recently. I just can't shake this cold or whatever. I'm going to go talk to a medical professional. I'm going to go talk to somebody. I'm going to invest my resources in speaking with somebody who can handle the situation, who can help me get on the right track. And that's wisdom. But when it comes to the overarching direction of your life and the importance that God's word puts on your own character, matters of righteousness and faithfulness, do you invest your resources into your relationship with the Lord? Is that something that you could say marked the week that just ended for you? It ended with me making an investment in God's input in my life. That sounds weird to say, so let's, let's think about that a little bit more. See, we easily prioritize other things over our own personal righteousness and faithfulness. We know the benefit of investing our time, going above and beyond at work, We know the benefit of learning a new skill or in stewarding our homes and our cars or raising our children well. Those are all good things. We put our time into it. We stay up late at night to take care of those things. But the priority of God's equipping us is in the personal matters of our character. It's at the root of why all those things really matter. The matters of righteousness and faithfulness where we can become professionals in trades and highly knowledgeable in relational skills, we won't reach a plateau in the matters of righteousness and faithfulness where we can say, hey, there's no more growing to be done. Wouldn't it be nice, though? Wouldn't it be nice if you could just say, I've reached Christian level 75, and everybody's telling me I'll still get to heaven if I just stay there? So there's really no point in growing? Church, why is it that you still struggle with sin? Why is it that some of you, and I'm not not pointing fingers, I'm just saying some of us have walked with the Lord longer than others. Why do we still have sin problems? Why is it that we still choose other things over God? Why is it that we prioritize these earthly matters over the matters of the kingdom and eternity? The matters of our own growth in Christ-likeness. We might even prioritize good ministry, good kingdom-building ministry over our own righteousness and faithfulness. Over our own relationship with God. Do you invest resources into your relationship with the Lord? Because we're not going to finish growing in righteousness and faithfulness this side of eternity. We may need to repent today of a foolish satisfaction in our own spiritual growth. I know this is something the Lord brought up in my own life. You know, read this and think about growth and think about growing in righteousness and faithfulness. And it's like immediately the Spirit's like, yeah, you think you've done all the growing you need to do in this. You're acting like you're not still a baby in the faith. As though though God has no more return for us on the investment. Left to our own, we're unrighteous. We're looking for shortcuts to worldly success. looking for comfort through the deception of sin. We're unfaithful at times, squandering the goodness of the life that God's granted to us. So that we can pursue our own will and our own plan. Apart from God's sovereign work, we are only all in on the investment on worldly and temporary pleasures. This kind of leaving brings no real reward or return on our investment. All it brings is death and destruction. David has done really well in this wilderness test part three today. But we don't always do well. We fail often. But the good news is there is a Messiah. You know, David was a Messiah. He was an anointed one for a time. But he was only a foreshadowing of a true and better Messiah. One who was completely invested in his Father's will. One for whom the matters of righteousness and faithfulness were crucial to fulfilling his Father's will. Do you remember reading through the Gospels and seeing those moments where the Gospel writer says, Jesus woke up early in the morning before the sun came up to do what? To prep for all of his ministry, to fill up all those baskets of bread. So that, no. To do what? Say it. To pray. To pray. What does he need to pray for? I saw a fascinating video this week of a Muslim talking to a Christian on the street and saying, does God pray to God? And the Christian's like, well, what are you talking about? No, of course he doesn't. He goes, well, what about John 17, where God, you're saying Jesus is God, he bows down and he prays to God. How can God pray to God? And the person was just kind of dumbfounded, like, well, no, he's... he's but." but this is part of the mystery and the grandeur of who Jesus Christ is. He is God. He is perfectly righteous, perfectly faithful. But what we will celebrate at my favorite time of year in Cindy's too, and she left, maybe she, maybe she doesn't like Christmas that much. Favorite time of year when we celebrate the incarnation, where God and man become one in the person of Jesus Christ where the matters of our need for righteousness and faithfulness are perfectly fulfilled because it is not merely God saying, all right, you know what, fine, I'll just snap my fingers and turn you faithful and righteous. The means by which we become faithful and righteous is the sacrifice of the faithful and righteous one. And the constant application, the constant investment of the Lord, the constant return and reward of the Lord in our hearts growing us more into the image of Christ from, as Paul says, one degree. I love that he says degree. It's not step. It's not. It's a degree of glory to the next. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, was one for whom the matter of righteousness and faithfulness was crucial to his mission. One who passed a far greater test than any that David did. One who faced the test of the cross where all his claims to union and obedience to the Father would be examined and found true, found righteous, found faithful. Where is our own righteousness and faithfulness, faithfulness. perfectly proven and applied to our account? Not a righteousness of faithfulness of our own making. But 1 Corinthians 1 30 says, Because God, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us. He became, church, how did he become? How did he become wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption? Through the cross, through the resurrection. He became those things for us. He was always those things. He always had the opportunity. But God so decreed, this is the way by which my people will become faithful and righteous. It is by the death of the faithful and righteous one. So, Hebrews 3 tells us, and tells us today, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. David seems sure faithful in this chapter. But I will tell you right now, spoiler alert, chapter 27, he is right back down at the bottom again. You're not supposed to leave your covenant people, but he goes and joins the enemy because he doesn't seem to think there's any other way to go. Church, we need the righteousness and faithfulness of Jesus Christ alone. And we have it faithfully delivered to us by his spirit. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word. Even when all the trials and the tests that we're facing seem to just be getting worse and worse and worse, grab onto a promise of God that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lord, I feel so forsaken, but I only feel that. That doesn't mean that it's true. For Christ was forsaken at the cross, but only for a moment so that you could be accepted. And so that promise could be 100% true every day of your life. Because Jesus paid it all. And we owe all to him. We owe all of our investment, all of our time, all of our talent, all of our treasure, all of our investment to be to Christ and Christ alone. And so Christ is raised from the dead the righteous and faithful king of heaven, is seated on his throne at this moment. Oh, church, the work of Christ's salvation enables us to walk in righteousness and faithfulness, aligned to God's way in our actions, and more importantly, in our character. Won't you invest your time in seeing the great work that the Lord has for your growth, for your progress, in becoming more like his son? We can honor him in no better way than to become more like him. That's what he's decreed. That is incredible. I mean, don't you feel like a flea sometimes? Don't you just feel like, Lord, there's, there's nothing I have to offer you? And God says, I know. <laughs> and you're like, well, that's not very nice. I know, but I still want you. That's incredible. I still want to conform you to the image of my son because that's how great a God I am. I can take a flea like Nick Vion. And start making him more into the image of Christ. We don't all see it yet, but God does. Won't you invest your time in seeing that work done? Won't you invest your time in having the Lord open your eyes to the reward that you have in Christ alone?